to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. Welcome to High Truths and our fascinating episode with Dr. Eva Lee and uh, talking about the credo model, community response to drug overdoses. Um, and we start our program with a question from our listeners. And one of our listeners is Marla Kincaid. Um, she is a facilitator at the San Diego Methamphetamine Strike Force and the Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force. Uh, with that, there's a committee of credo, community response to drug overdoses that I chair. And she, her question is... Thank you, Dr. Lev, for having this important podcast. You are the forefront of developing solutions to address our nation's drug problem. My name is Marla Kincaid, and I am the facilitator of the San Diego County Meth Strike Force and the Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force. One of our new committees within the Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force is the Community Response to Drug Overdoses, also known as CREDO. As one of the leaders of this new committee here in San Diego County, I was wondering if you could share more about the Credo Committee and other examples of breaking silos to develop coordinated responses across systems. Thank you, Marla, for your question and for using our High Truths expert to enhance your work in San Diego. Marla works for CCR, Center for Community Research, and generous sponsor of this episode. So thank you, Marla, and thank you, CCR. To answer this question, I knew exactly who to bring. We have an expert today who is known to break silos and networks, is a mathematician and an engineer. Dr. Eva Lee is a professor and director of the Center of Operations, Research, and Medicine and Healthcare at Georgia Institute of Technology. The center focuses on public health and defense. They do things such as basic science research and translational medicine research. She served as senior health systems engineer for the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. She was co-director of the Center of Health Organization Transformation. She worked with the CDC on defense of pandemics and biological warfares way before we had our current coronavirus pandemic. 
She traveled to Japan to develop rapid response to radiation exposure from the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Her research focuses on mathematical programming, informational technology, game theory, networks, machine learning, and computational algorithms for risk assessment. Her work has reached our nation's capital when she has served on a committee that provides guidance to the President of the United States and Department of Health and Human Services on national preparedness. Dr. Eva Lee's bio is included in the High Truths show notes. Dr. Lee, that's uh, quite a mouthful, and some of it is way over our heads, but welcome to High Truths. Well, thank you for the invitation, and thank you for the very generous introduction. It's, it's an honor to be invited, and thank you. Well, it's an honor to have you, and uh, I couldn't even read your entire bio, and I just kind of tried to read your research. It's all uh, pretty geeky stuff for folks like us who are interested in drugs and addiction, but we are honored to have a brainiac mathematician on High Truths. I have a son who's a mathematician, and I'm sure he will be inspired by this uh, episode. And uh, I knew that you're the right person to answer Marla's question. But before we do, let's learn a little bit more about you. How did a math major become someone who's advising on medicine and medical preparedness? Well, I guess I have to thank the doctors. So my, I finished my degree at Rice for, the, for my mathematical education, and I started my first job at Columbia University. I was the first female faculty in the Department of um, Industrial Engineering and Operations Research. And that's where I connected to the medical school and the doctors really trained me really well. So on oncology, on all these medical decision makings, which truly is amazing. My feeling is that doctors are being put in a position where their, their daily challenge is just uh, amazing. I mean, in terms of like how they have to put all these variables together and come up with plans that is executed on human. I think that is something um, truly astonishing and opened up my eyes. So I think I learned a lot from them and, and I decided that's what I would like to dedicate myself in this area and working along with all these great doctors like yourself and trying to make a difference in the world. So I think that's, I have to give thanks to all the medical doctors that have trained me. Without them, I won't, I won't be able to make any difference. And so I think that's, that's the bulk of the credits is theirs. Well, that's very, very nice. But uh, you are still a power chick who who made that happen and forged a, really a new way. You first female in your department, and then you made an avenue um, that wasn't there before um, for you know people who will follow you. And with that, you you now work at Georgia Tech, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And you lead the Center for Operational Research in Medicine and Healthcare. Can you tell us about the center and what you're currently doing? So the, you know, the field of operations research really came out from the military. That's the operations where, like all the scientists support the um the warfare and also rescue mission and all the, in some sense, that's really in the 30s and 40s during the wartime. And, and in that sense, is a lot of the operations are resource limited and time urgent, right? I mean, everything about that and also complex it, and it always have human in the loop. If everything we do has no human, 
then okay, maybe that's not much to worry about, right? Because you don't you don't really think so much about the impact and and all these. But it is really human in the loop, combining with all the processes that make it really complicated. So that's what we build models for that, trying to optimize the. Um, usage of resources, trying to optimize the outcome, trying to reduce the risk, and trying to really get the best informed decision within a short period of time. So everything, in a sense, is related to pandemic, right? I mean, naturally, it is also related to the like the challenges that the doctor face when they see patients, they have to make decisions within short period of time, they need to really come up with the like a plan, even though um, there are lots of uncertainties and a lot of unknowns to it, right? So there's a lot of trial and errors, but yet the decision made has to be informed decisions so that we understand what risk and what trade-off that we are looking at, what is the outcome that is to be expected. Interesting. So do you build models that uh, look in all to that and and uh, put in where human error occurs and, and fixing that component? Absolutely. Absolutely. The model, like, I mean, one of the things that we talk about, like solutions, I think you asked a perfect question, is that when you come up with a solution, you want the solution to be forgiving. Or people like to say, like, in the engineering term, robust, right? So forgiving means that if I have a data that I use to get a solution, and if somebody said, oh, by the way, I got some errors or little noise in the data, the solution or the optimal solution remains optimal. And that is really good. It is very forgiving. It allows you to have uncertainties and it gives you the really, um, like the, the confidence in the solution that you can actually execute it and it is the right solution. So I think that's extraordinarily important. And, and human errors, it's um, like in a sense, even with the best human, there will always be problem because there could be fatigue. There it could be like distractions and not because they are so bad because a lot of times the errors made by human is not because the human is so poor in the performance. It is really all the distractions and that they are overloaded with the, with the um, like all the decisions that they have to make. So we put all of those inside so that there's a server that is providing the service may have the errors made. And also even the client that is receiving the service could also influence those errors. So we put all of those in it and try to minimize that. So when I think of system solutions that prevent human error, I think of things such as um, the world of anesthesia, where, you know, people used to die more commonly from anesthesia. And the big thing that that was made differently is there became uniformity across the entire world in the buttons and the sizes and the shapes that people can't accidentally reach for something else. This button gives you this medication and it's the same no matter what hospital you go to anywhere in the world. And medicines that have, you know, eye drops, if it's a red top, it means it constricts. If it's a uh, green top, it means it dilates. If it's a different color eye drop, then automatically you have a visual and know what's in the bottle so you don't accidentally reach for something else. Those are the, yeah. that's kind of what I think of when it comes to system solutions for human errors. Is are those the kind of things just to understand better what? Oh what no, system I, think, I think what you show exactly that's one type of the uh, indeed that is one type of the um, systems approach 
in the design of the hardware. Like if you look at cockpit, the design of the you know airplane, how which button to press exactly what you were saying is that the standardization of exactly where those buttons are actually was designed based on the human repeated actions and how cognitively they understand the locations and that they accept it rapidly in the same way as like driving a car and all those, right? That is actually part of the system design precisely. It is the industrial engineering, ergonomics and uh, human factor and the systems design on the physical part, right? So those buttons and stuff. But then now you look into the cognitive part. So now doctors are going to make decisions when patients come in with different things. How will they take in the parameters and the variables and make decisions inside their brain? And uh, under what conditions they will be more conducive, like if they see a visualization that will help them to come up with a global plan that is clear, versus if they see some data where it confused them and they may choose wrong thing and draw a wrong conclusion, right? Those are all part of the design, yes. So it is the physical and then in the digital and also in the really cognitive thinking part and all of those are part of the design. And, and then within the models itself, we also build in that. That means if somebody made errors, so your model is able to capture that and basically like avoid those errors to be disseminated, right? As a part of the decision. And with that, that would really, in some sense, you could say that it's like allowing a, a large fault tolerance, which is really good. That means you can make mistakes, but no matter what mistakes one is making, it does not cause grave consequence. And, and that those type of solutions are extremely important. I, I love that concept and we, we definitely have it in hospital systems, but probably any type of work environment when there's an error made, there could be the blame game. How come you did this and why did you make this error? But when I see error, I see it as an opportunity to really ask, is that really that person, a bad employee, or is most likely it's a system problem and you really need to look internally to fix it. And uh, so so really, that's kind of how I like to look at that. And I, I like that there's a whole profession dedicated to that. Um, how does that relate to to drugs and, and the opioid epidemic? Can you share with us how some of those projects you've led um, on opioids? So it's, it's very interesting. There are two parts of it, like in the medical side. So we, we look at pain management. So, I mean, at the beginning, it's all just medicine, looking at the overdose. In the, we saw lots of overdose patients in the ED and operationally, it's, it's clearly overwhelming for the doctors, right? So on the operational side, we need to see, okay, patients come in, what actions do we need to do? What type of resources is needed? What is the timeline we need to respond? And what is, or what are the best response? or the team of people that should do the response. But then if you step back, looking at prescription of opioid. Now, this is interesting because it is not just an opioid. So I look at treatment designed and uh, basically looking at how do we optimize or personalize treatment so that um, it gives the best result to each individual patient. And, and so during that process, as I'm looking at it, I look at the pain management, looking at different type of drugs and the effect. And as it turns out, it's very interesting. Like we discovered 49.7% of the doctors prescribed fentanyl as part of the addition drug on the pain management. And then the rest, like the 50.3% didn't use fentanyl. And then so we, I tried to look at what exactly is the difference in the outcome and discovered that there was none. 
And and so you can see, like re removing fentanyl from it, first, like reducing the waste of the uh, drug that has no effect, at least for those patients, and that it saves a lot of money. And then it also reduced potential addiction in the future by these patients. So in, in some sense, it is all just about reducing waste that we are looking at. So it doesn't have to be just opioid. But then I look across many different divisions and, and, and discover that a lot of the drugs that are being prescribed were too much in the, uh, in the dosage and too frequently. So, so it turns out and the outcome turns out to be much better, for example, in the diabetics so we use less drugs and um, less frequency of the drugs and the outcome is so much better. So I think it is really wonderful. So it is kind of like, it gives you better outcome, but it also in this case, reducing the use of opioid and also reduce the potential addiction by the, um, by the patient. So that's on the medical side. But then if you look at on the Homeland Security and the defense side, illegal drugs, um, you know, come and go, and it is not about just opioid, it's about all the illegal substance that try to really um, basically get into the market, right, through the supply chain, illegal supply chain network, get into the market and trying to really um, affect the broadest population and uh, really financially, right, funnel the finance, as well as really, in some sense, inflict a lot of um, really graves, uh, across, not just in a medical setting, but also in the criminal setting, and also in the socio-economical and the community setting. I think that's really some of the stuff that I'm looking at. So I, I am very passionate in terms about how do we intersect or in like, like basically like um, look at what are the critical notes on criminal networks? How do we be able to identify the vulnerable notes of those criminal networks and disrupt them. I mean, to think about being able to remove them totally, it's at the moment not possible. But being able to disrupt them enough so that it will slow down the inflow of all these illegal drugs and harmful drugs to the population so that we could actually really recover in, in terms of like individuals um, reducing the addiction and also being able to go back to the community and you know recover and review their life. I think those are all important. So all of these are connected. So I think the connectivity is really, from the mathematical point of view, is really beautiful and very complex. But then it also makes me really appreciate people like you and, and others where you are in the front line dealing with the medical side as well as the operational side. It is not easy. I mean, it is easy to just criticize someone for not doing a good job. But once you see the network, then you understand the disruption part has to be very systematic so that you actually see the biggest effect and allows you to really intervene in the most effective way. That's, that's interesting. And I have to, um, our listeners kind of maybe thinking about fentanyl. When are, when are doctors giving fentanyl? Um, and uh, I think I should clarify, it's, you're probably doing your work on fentanyl back in 2011, 2012, maybe at the peak of the opioid prescribing epidemic. And at that time, and maybe people don't even remember, but we would have patients coming in the emergency department and to doctor's office with fentanyl patches. We would call them a fentanyl vest because sometimes they would wear a whole bunch of them um, and they, they would overdose. And that's because, you know, the medical community was taught 
uh, to do that, you know, mm-hmm. either from from the pharmaceutical or, you know, the way, uh, you know, medicine is taught um, from, you know, so-called experts that kind of pushed the issue of fentanyl. And mm-hmm. we were seeing a lot of problems with the fentanyl patches and, um, and you know, we, we cut back. And actually saying the word cut back, the worst thing that you could have done with a fentanyl patch, we had a guy who got a fentanyl patch he cut it in half because he wanted only half the dose. But what happens when you cut it, you actually get more of the drug because it seeps through. And he overdosed and ended up on a ventilator um, from cutting his fentanyl patch in half. That, that was not good. So you were able to, in a mathematical formula, look at these prescriptions, outcomes, and show that that's not you know, not a good way. And, um, and I say, I think we, that's, that's successful um, because we don't do that anymore. Well, I don't see people with fentanyl vests anymore and coming in there, they're good for three days and then they would come to the emergency department or their doctor and get another one. Um, mm-hmm. So we really don't, we, we kind of stopped that. And I'm wondering if you're working on any other things like that, where you could show in a mathematical formula and, and education for, things that we are prescribing with little benefit. And I'm thinking um, benzodiazepines and even sleep aids. Really, if you're getting a sleeping pill every single day of your life, are you really sleeping better? You know, Mm -hmm. and if you're getting a Xanax all the time for seven years, are you really less anxious or are you still coming to the emergency department with anxiety? Um, And that's all related to the, you know, overdose um, right, right. We have it. Yes. People don't overdose on one drug, they overdose on um, several. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think I think the, the this is interesting. What you mentioned exactly is that our analysis is not just on like one type of drugs. And in fact, we look at all the different type of drugs that is being prescribed after operations, for example, like, you know, when patients come in and they have operations and then they they would be on drugs for several days. And like, for example, even for congenital uh, heart patients, so post-operations um, care. And so we measure the type of uh, sedative that they're using and different type of drugs that they're using and how long it takes them to have the extub- before they have extubation and all those and map them out. And very interesting. So we recommend a shorter period of um extubation across 10 different sites. And so they were able to in um, like incorporate that and um, roll out that within a year. And uh, the results are quite astonishing. The reduction of drug usage is 55%. So that's amazing. So it is not just um, like opioid. And that's the beauty of it precisely is that being able to provide the guidelines on how much drug to use and and also like the minimum amount that has the best effect. I think that's most important in the same way as like the, I think sleeping pill, you hit a really um, very critical point here is because one third of Americans are using sleeping pills, right? And one question, what is the really effect on the cognitive of the individual? If, if this is what they take every night. And yes, I think I think absolutely the dosage, like at what level that is being put out at least, is just way too high. 
So that's really not uh, not conducive in terms of really for the cognitive and the well-being of the individuals. And that's one thing, hopefully, that uh, some of the doctors in the front line will, will I'm sure they're very passionate about uh, helping the patients and, and find different ways. And my feeling is that in general, we kind of overdose in the United States. But I'm very used to the... the um, the, we overprescribe I, in the United yeah, States. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, overprescribe. Yes, <laughs> we're so, we're 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 pill happy. You know, there has yeah. to be a pill for everything, and it it char- it starts when people are babies. You know, yo, you have a little something. Let's take give you a medicine for that. And if you look at United Kingdom, and that's what the system that I'm used to, the healthcare system, like they give you the tiniest amount of pills, and that's it. You know, you cannot even ask for more. And then when you do the upper endoscopy, all that they do is spray your throat and they don't give you IV. And in fact, that is what I'm used to. And and well, I, think I don't that, know if I want that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you can do that. <laughs> I don't want to get my endoscopy in the United Kingdom then. <laughs> and I, think, I think I'm used to that. So now, like, like, you know, in UK, yes, I don't have to tell them, don't, I don't want the IV and stuff. But in the, in the, um, in America, I, I live here for 32 years already. And, and so I still have to tell them, don't give me the IV. And, and it is a struggle because they are afraid that something would go really wrong and you have to be in IV. So it is a, it, it's, I think that must be a culture, but I think it is okay for some people because they, they naturally will not be overdosed, right? They will not be taking far too much. But, but, but then because of the pharmaceutical basically has a direct advertisement to the patients, then it makes them feel that they are empowered, right? If I need, if I'm sick, I need something and I must demand my, my doctor's to give me something. So I think that mm. is really what happened. Not so much of the doctors give them a lot of things. It's why the patients are so proactive in the drugs, right, themselves. And that's difficult. Yeah. I'm laughing because I'm thinking of my shift yesterday and I had a guy who called 911 because he needed a refill of his tramadol and he was screaming like, what's taking so long? All I need is my tramadol refill. <laughs> but that's... Yeah. That it's, was it's his expectation. And, and, and truly, it, this is difficult. I think it's very difficult for the doctors. So Yeah. Um, and you were talking about criminal networks. That's very intriguing. You know, so there's, I, I, I think of the opioid epidemic in, in two ways. There's the um, illicit market from criminals, and then there's illicit market from the medical community. And I think we are getting the medical part under control. I I actually think that we've ended the prescription opioid epidemic. And if we want to decrease the number of people who've died from prescriptions, we need to think beyond opioids. We need to think of the combination of medications, the sleeping pills and benzodiazepines and all of the things that are addicting that people die of medicines. We could control that as a medical community. The part that I have no idea how to control the illicit market and, and uh, you know, the, the illicit heroin, and actually we have less heroin now. Um, we have more fentanyl because it's easier to make, but how do you, how do you map out, map out in the same way as you did for the medical community, the, the criminal networks? So that's, well, clearly it's, 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 Different, but but I think what you mentioned about the illicit one, yes, that's actually really what troubles me is about all these drugs that are synthetic. 
that is made that could be more deadly, right? When people use it and any type of illicit um, drug, not just opioid, exactly as you say. And and I think that seems to be a big market because um, the the it's so common for people to use recreational drugs, and then and then there is the market of like people basically um, criminal networks. Truly, I mean, people that that are selling drugs and and that is what they do and trying to also not just selling drugs, but also spreading it across right to to a bigger community, because that is where the market is. So I think that is like you could think about the transshipment like uh, CBP screening of different parcels coming into the United States through the air customs and border protection. Yeah, through the ground and, and through the sea and all of those like the drugs and and we work with some of the CBP leader and and exactly is how do you screen them in the best possible way because the drugs coming in will be in different shapes and form and right I mean the packages could be different you might not realize what they are how do you actually address that how do you actually come up with screening and operational size so that it is efficient and that it is like effective in terms of screening the the ones that that is uh, like have the drugs in it so I think it is very difficult but we do map those out and looking at the operational side, how do you screen? And then also looking at different different parts and how the network of the transportation shift from one place to another. But clearly it is there's no one size fit all because the network itself is pretty broad and it could just be small time like criminals, but it could also be really a network ring that come all the way from Asia and from different countries. And so those are those are all like different little pieces have to be connected together. But once you have even a partial network, then you can take actions. Right? You can really apply it like um, disruption on those networks to see how it may impact the local community in terms of, you know, the drugs and everything. So, and that's why I think the forensic of the drug itself is so important because if we could sequence all these and then analyze the composition of the drugs, then we will know what is the source of the drugs. And then we could combine them together knowing where they come from and then basically connect those networks together. So it becomes a much bigger network, but richer in terms of being able to uh, allow the federal leaders and also the operators to be able to take some actions. I I took um, a tour of the Custom and Border Protection um, area in Baltimore and a lot of things come in by cars and they actually get a CAT scan of the car and they're able to detect, you know, potential drugs hidden in the wheels or, you know, in the, you know, different compartments um, by getting x-rays. So there is a formula for which car to pick and where to find. So I guess those are the kind of things that you you work on in a in yes. a mathematical they're, way. They're formulas and um, they're sizes, and there are also like also of circumstances where you look at how you know the composition, right? The physical composition and also the human composition to figure out which one are the, the at risk one. And then just like the airport screening, right? There are different lines, and somebody can go through fast, and someone has to go through a full checking and in uh, like investigation. So. Mm-hmm. Right. Airport screen. That's a very good um, 
analogy. And then uh, postal, a lot of drugs come in the mail. So you have to have a formula of which ones to to pick out and investigate and while not slowing down the mail because people want to yes. get their mail in time. Yeah, and it, it right? is really so difficult, I think, trick. because the operator sometimes has no idea what's going on, right? A biological agent in a package, right? It could be toxin, right? It could mm-hmm. be, you could be reacting to it. So, so I, I mean, in a sense, I think I, I am just so um, impressed in, in some ways by the operators because they are being exposed to so many different things, but yet I think, you know, they try to do their best. And I think like, there's a lot of the um, imaging technology trying to really help with uh, identifying what are the susceptible packages and stuff. Yes, it is, it is complicated and it's never ending because it is evolving. All the new drugs, the packages, they always evolve to avoid being uh, picked out. And, and so we always have to be one step ahead of them. Yeah. And it seems like we're always one step uh, behind. <laughs> um, but, but I like what you had. Yeah. What, what you've said about criminal records when we've talked before is that you can't get rid of them, but you can disturb them. Right. And mm-hmm. we all, and that's kind of the goal. Like they'll always right. be there, mm-hmm. but you just need well, to, to agitate are, it. My feeling is that if we could disrupt them, it, slow down the process, right? It gives us the time that we need. Exactly like the work that I do, like on IED, for example, the improvised explosive devices. It's not so much we could say, well, look, we don't want any explosives, but that takes a lot more effort to figure out who are the one that is going to plan them and everything. But if we could be one step ahead, then that saves lives because you you know there is the warning there and then you won't send your team there. And so that's the same thing. In the case of the um, screening, I think the challenge is multiple folds. There are trusted um, members basically re- relying on the companies to build the trusted networks and to do the screening so that we give them the benefits of faster screening and everything. And, and that kind of protect their business, right? And so it gives them the incentive to do the screening because we don't have all the resources. So I think those type of partnerships are great. And so we have some of the, um, done some of the analysis on like, how do you incentivize companies to do that so that we got more resources to help the government in terms of screening itself. So Marla asks um, about models for credo, community response to drug overdoses and methods of getting various silos to work together on, on common goals. Um, and, and I always use the analogy of contact tracing. We do it for COVID. We do it for salmonella infected lettuce. We recall food products. What about drugs? Um, you know, can you give us examples of, of models who kind of tackle that? So it's, it's an interesting part. Yeah, I think contact tracing is used in <clears throat> in a sense in a very broad setting. So like um, like in, in some sense, we think about the six degree separation, right? I mean, like everybody is connected somehow to everyone. So you could think about the um, law enforcement could uh, arrest someone selling drugs and we could trace from this individual like, the drugs that he or she has sold to um, who are these individuals. And then some of them may land in the hospital setting, right? And that connects to the medical community, the source of the drugs. 
And then in the same way that you, when you do the contact tracing, you also know who are the um, supplier to these uh, drug dealer and that that supplier could connect to a criminal network, right? So exactly. So you are building the network itself precisely is a contact and it is, uh, it gives you information of relationship of either a process and shipments or human that, that like who are the buyer and everything, or even the distributor, which in the bigger level, right? And organization. So yes, I think those are, I mean, in a sense, I think the contact tracing is even more critical and complex in, in that case is because you are not looking at just human to human anymore. Your contact now is the processes, the organizations, the routes and the networks. And I think it's beautiful. And I think that is indeed, you are forced to connect all the discipline together, right? Law enforcement cannot say, well, I'm not going to talk to the doctor because it's all it's all connected. So naturally you will connect together. And then the people that are looking at forensics of the drugs, so they are connected too because, you know, law enforcement, people communicate with them. And so they also communicate with the doctors. And so I think, I think, and community themselves also has part of it. So I think, yes, it is a, a beautiful concept. And also, I think that is the way to go. And my feeling also, if we could build a exactly that network that, that we just talked about, that is the network that we are looking at also for disruption, right? I mean, that's because when we actually have a network, then we can decide and determine what are the critical nodes that we could disrupt by disrupting it, it will give us the best benefit that will actually reduce the largest number of people from accessing to certain drugs and being able to remove a network of, uh, you know, of the drug dealer and being able to also disrupt the supply. So I think all of those are important. And, and I think, yes, it is a, a very nice concept and also it is absolutely applicable. And in fact, it is very broad in terms of that concept. I call it putting together the three P's, health, public safety, and prevention. And each of these professions, you know, work in silo in a very nice way. But if we bring together our intelligence, we do such a better job, um, right? Public health is interested in the health aspect and, and treatment and prevention in a medical way, public safety is in, you know, wants to get rid of the supply of drugs coming in and killing people and prevention, um, wants to be able to give focused data-driven education uh, about what's helping in that community. So it really, um, that's what we're trying to do. And you as an expert, I'm wondering if you, if you've seen the model already in other places, have you, um, worked on best practices or standards. One of the things when I was at ONDCP at, at the White House, we worked with uh, the Department of Homeland Security and the National Security Con um, Council to hopefully create a standard, a credo standard for, for overdoses. And, uh, you know, every good idea starts with some hiccups. That's how I got connected to you, um, which is which is fascinating. And so, you know, we'd love to have you as an advisor and and uh, have, but uh, have you seen this model working? Is it, is there a template or is it something that we're already, we're, we're doing from scratch? So I think it's yes and no. I think the, I, I totally agree with you, the public health, public safety and the prevention have to work hand in hand. Part of the reason, because they are not, um, they're not individual entity where it is 
totally independent, right? So if a doctor really um, has treated a patient and sent this individual back to the community, so you will need a community with strong prevention, right, protocol, so that it will prevent this individual mm-hmm. get back to the bad habits or access to all these um illegal drugs and everything that we don't want them to to repeat the same step. So I think you could see right away. And and with that, actually, I would say it relates very much with the chronic disease management, very much like the chronic Mm -hmm. disease management, where you cannot just have it as a way of like treating the patients, but you need a strong prevention and um, community engagement to make it happen. So I think it is similar, but I think only like in some of the cases, public health and in uh, medical in the in on a chronic disease is that they try really hard to to build that part. It's not, I would not say totally successful, but at least that is more like, you know, more uh, towards a working piece of um, like, how do you say it? Not maybe a protocol or something that they strive to get into a standard. And, and with drug um, overdose and all of this, yes, I think a standard would be good. And Credo itself, I totally support it. And I also think the beauty of it is that it is a generalizable network, right, of, of a construct. And that as the, you know, if you look at the changes and the evolving of all these illegal drugs, we are going to fight the war. And it is going to be a long war. But on the other hand, if we have the griddle and all this interconnectivity of these three branches, then it will make the fight a lot easier because we could be ahead of the game because we could put all things in place where it could work with each other and that we can preempt a lot of the issues that would happen. So I think, yes, it is very important. I haven't seen a, San Diego is really um, ahead of others as, as you have mentioned to me. And I think this is great. And I know uh, Cincinnati has some of the, Hamilton County has some of the network, but not totally integrated because I think they're still trying to integrate. And, but the law enforcement- We're, and, we're still trying to integrate it. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think we, we have a concept, we have a vision, but we're not there yet. Yeah, and I would love to help you guys in, in building the, um, you know, the network, both from the local point of view and then connect it to the national level. Because I know DHS is very interested in having the credo in the national, like in the federal level and supporting, you know, the local uh, fights. And, and so I believe that we could do it. And we could start with the local, like, you know, San Diego and, and all these, build it across the community and then grow that network to the statewide and then grow it across the nation. Yes. I think that's something that I, I would love to to be part of it. And, and I think it is very worthwhile and it's very important. That's great. And um, it's interesting that you talked about chronic disease. Uh, that's usually diabetes or hypertension or heart disease prevention. Um, how it would apply to addiction? Yeah, it's an interesting part. Yeah, I learned, like, there's so much to learn. And, and uh, I have to say the medicine side is so much harder than the mathematics. <laughs> so I, I think for me, it's not for me. <laughs> but the, but the, like, like the, so, so for HIV is an interesting part. I mean, one of the things about HIV, it truly is exactly what you say, contact trace, right? Everything about the, the sexually transmitted disease is everything connected, but in a very intimate level. I mean, in a sense that almost nobody would want to share with you anything about it, but yet, like the, the key part is how do you reach out to the high risk group and 
provide them with the um, the trust, like and and also the ability to really communicate and to reach out if they need help, right? So I think that's a big part of it. And and so it is interesting. We we were looking at how to reach out with to the high risk group, and that uh, people with a uh, large number of sexual partners. And that basically want them to do the screening and provide them with really free screening, but but make them realize this is a preventive, right? Preventive um, like uh, procedure, and that there's no like nothing asked. So we don't need to know any of the background and everything. So we just only want to help. So it took a long time to really figure out who we can actually motivate to take the leadership. Who will they trust? And who were they really willing to report to? And, and it is very interesting because community leaders, some of them could step up and say, yes, I would be happy to help and I can reach out to different people. So church leaders sometimes are very good uh, influencers. So they turn out to be really able to take in the people and have them you know, have the trust and that we were able to really reach out and say, hey, this is the test that that is offered and it's free and you could do it every six months. And like, 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 and, and so this is how it works. It's all the network that is building. I love that. Cause faith, the faith, best leader, faith, faith, best leaders are exactly the ones we need to reach out for in addiction. It's really the same people. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. building the trust is extremely important. So I build a network and it's kind of a nice one, you know, mathematically. So I basically build like the human at the lower level, like, and then, and then who do we know? What are the friends that we know? And what are the people that we trust? And then you have another level. And then who are the people that you acquaint to? You kind of know them, you know, just casually or on work level. And so, so as we build those levels and then trying to come up with who are the ones that are most influential and trustworthy that is actually not like just your best friend and stuff. And so, yes, we identify the church leaders and then we also identify some that are more trustworthy or like trusting by others than that. And, and so it, it works out really well. So we build out those networks and they agree to pass out pen, like, you know, all these um, templates of things and, and have educational uh, materials and even have um, like just short, you know, short description or, or lectures allowing us to talk to them. And so once we got to talk to them, so I, I, I met a lot of the homeless people and the first time it was really, difficult because you know we don't know what to say in order to be appropriate but i think once you tell them the key message and they seem to be really engaged and so once we can get hold of several people then we got a big group because the several people will start spreading the news for us and so i think that's really important so we got the leaders we got also the reach out to the group and then the group themselves really spread out like uh, and and spread the news to everyone, and then it works out really really well at the end. So yeah, I'm very happy to be part of that, and and I think it's um it's something that yes, I think the drug overdose something we should really work like that because the community engagement and this community support is extremely important for recovery, right? I mean, once they get out of the hospital, they also need that support. Mm -hmm. As well, as, and then prevention too. We yes. we can't just do treatment and not think about the the preventive aspect. I love that model, and you know what? Hearing you talk about that says tells me that if we wanted to, 
if America was really committed to this, we could do it because we did it with HIV. And I and the timeline is very specific. Um, HIV came out when I was in medical school, right? In, in 1989, 1990. At that point, HIV was a death sentence. You yes. got HIV, you would die. You came to the emergency department, you know, early in my career, I saw everything, you know, all the Carposi sarcomas and cryptococcus and every chest x-ray, you know, I know what that disease like that. We don't see that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. people are not dying every day from HIV and AIDS as, mm-hmm. as they were. We really, all that really made a difference um, and, and something that seemed really hopeless. And I, if we wanted to do this with, with drugs and overdoses, we can, we would apply the same, like you would say, the mathematical model that I'm sure if you drew at drew it out for me. I would not understand it, Eva. <laughs> but uh but uh it it it's applicable to addiction and overdoses. And we could do the same thing if we wanted to make that investment. Yes. Um, but in the meantime we work piecemeal. Yeah, I think HIV is amazing because there is even a vaccine for it now, right? I mean, if we think about how much exactly, not just even having HIV is like a death sentence. It's like a social stigma that nobody wants to be close to you, right? I mean, so basically, it was amazing how it was turned around. It, it's just really, once we get a high-risk people, that is the prevention, right? Exactly as you say, because prevention is better than the cure because we must stop people from getting into it first. And so I do believe the drug overdose, we could fight the war. And I think, yes, we need the community engagement and we need all the leaders and and everyone to be. Now, the good thing is that, you know, with the young generation, you can really even uh, using social media of the young generation right those leaders could be a very good leaders to help and and basically educational outreach for us is a lot bigger because of the the way um the network is built now but i still maintain that a human touch is important and that uh community leaders step up and then being able to assist and that we reach out to all these people it's it's very important but but i absolutely believe that that would work yes yeah, so that that's inspiring that if you know we we can do it and we can look at previous models of of how how it happened and what was successful. I love that. When we were talking earlier, we talked about the cost of addiction and and drugs in our society and there are the the back end costs, you know, that I see as a, 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 a as a doctor, you know, the infections and hospitalizations and mental health and especially during the pandemic, it's, it's, um, it seems worse. And if it's not worse, it's a, it's definitely a greater percentage of the entire volume of what we see in the, in the hospital is related to, to drugs. Um, but there's also a, a front end cost. And I was telling you that I feel that we are paying for drugs, not just in terms of what's happening in healthcare or, or criminal um, things that are happening related to drugs, but also in the front end. And I see this directly in the pandemic. The stimulus check came out. Everybody got their, you know, few hundred dollars and that went to pay for drugs. <laughs> and the next day they were in the emergency room or they were getting their, um, you know, 
a social security check because they're unemployed and, you know, on payday the next day, they're in the emergency department with an overdose. So I feel like the government dollars are going to pay for drugs on the front end, actually buying the drugs and on the back end. And Mm -hmm. uh, we kind of talking about that and, 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 uh, you know, ways of, of preventing that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think I think you're absolutely right, and this is not new. As as we know, like a lot of the subsidy checks that go to certain people, and then they just end up buying drugs, buying you know alcoholic drinks and cigarettes, and right everything we mm-hmm. don't want them to do. Right, basically it and, and it happens. So my feeling is that like. It would be great if those checks, I mean, will be able to to really say, look, those money can only be spent on certain things, right? I mean, it would be great if we could have a a requirement like that, but clearly we can't because of the COVID-19 and the pandemic. But I think it would still be worthwhile we talk about is really to analyze what are the dollars spent on drugs by these individuals and mm-hmm. and what is it in comparison to the amount of dollars that is being paid, right, to, to like, from the government. So I think that would be very important. And also knowing, like, um, like how could we actually track this so that the dollar that is spent from by the government truly goes to the relief of the COVID-19 and the hardship of the family and not to individuals who are addicted to drugs. I think that's really very important because we do want to say, well, the checks uh, come in and it helps to to buy food and, you know, help with all these like, type of things instead of having someone in the family took the money and just went off and, and get drugs for his or her own use. So I think, I think that's something mm-hmm. of great concern. And that has always been the case with a lot of the subsidies from the government. So you, you raise a very good point. And, and I think, I don't know, maybe you know better, can the federal government do something in the policy level to like, to avoid that from happening, to just streamline it so that it can only be used for certain things? Or what do you think? I think, of course you could, you could, you could say, you know, you know, you cannot accept, you know, uh, money at the grocery store that'll go to alcohol or cigarettes or drugs or have drug testing. Like if you end up positive or in the emergency room, then next month your check doesn't go to you. Your check will go to a payee. And then you have to show mm-hmm. that you're not using drugs and then you'll get your check again after you've, you've win that trust. So yes. It, um, but the problem is, do we have the willpower to make that happen? I don't know about that. Um, you know, we're very, yeah. uh, very free society. I have the rights to, you know, if I can, I, I want to buy alcohol and cigarettes and cocaine with my money. Why shouldn't I not be able to do that? I think there's a lot yeah, of people who believe that way, but yeah. I, as a, you know, I think of it as a parent, if I'm a mother and I'm giving, you know, allowance to my child, uh, you know, there's certain things they shouldn't be able to do with that. Right. And buying alcohol, cigarettes and drugs are, yeah, yeah. Don't want my you know, don't want my money going to that. And so I do, I do think there's ways of developing a a way where the money does not go to that. Um, But is, is there a willpower to do that? But I think you point out something that might be possible to implement though, and may not be so hard is the drug test. Because like if somebody receives the check and somebody is, you know, addicted to drugs and if he or she has an overdose, right? Following, so you know, 
what they spend the money on, right? So, so in a sense, during now, unless we never saw these individuals, but if they show up in the hospital, then I think a question could be asked. And then it gives them an incentive that, well, if you don't have a clean drug test, then you're not going to get the check, right? So in that sense, you're not going to get the check like yourself, like exactly, right? You pay it to mm-hmm. someone that will uh, take care of things and allow you to spend it on different things. So that might be a way to do it. Part of the reason is if they really get into trouble and, and have a drug overdose and stuff, then that becomes a public record, right? That becomes right. a public record. And even though it is a medical record, but the overdose itself um, is a public record and, and it's not about medical conditions and stuff. And, and with that, then I think they have to be uh, held accountable for, for it. And, and that could be something segue back to the next paycheck. And, and I would start that system if we had such, if there was such a willpower is with the mental health, because people end up in the psych ward, the mental health unit, because of drugs repeatedly. Um, and that would be easy to say, wait, you're, you're, you're not taking your medicines. You're spending the money that the government's giving you on drugs and you're ending up again and again and again in the hospital or in the mental health ward. We need to break that cycle. Why do we just, we're, we're, it's a revolving door. And it's a failed, just like kind of your fentanyl example that you you started up talking. It's like we were prescribing fentanyl again and again and again. Were people in less pain? Were there problems with it? No. Yeah. So why don't we stop doing that? If something is is not working, why do we do it again and again and again? And I think, again, this is a good example. So who knows? Um, but but it is it is interesting to, to talk about. And, you know, I'd, I'd remiss, we've been talking about um, you know, drugs and addiction, but you've have such a career um, stemming way before we had coronavirus pandemic in in working on pandemics and biological warfare. And I I know as an emergency physician, uh, the pandemic was not a surprise in education um, level. We've, you know, part of our training years ago was disaster medicine and preparedness and biological warfare with anthrax or Ebola or Zika, or, you know, we've, we we think in our minds and prepare. Um, and then, then the only surprise is that it really hit us and now we're living the experience, but, mm-hmm. but the whole concept of it is not new. So maybe share with us how um, you've prepared for it and then implement response and whole work um, with vaccines and, and things like that. Well, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I guess I started the um, COVID-19 study when it's called the 2019 new coronavirus, right? the novel coronavirus, that's back in December. I just stumbled upon that because I was finishing up a paper on MERS and trying to, it's coronavirus, right? very deadly, but not so transmissible. And um, so I wanted to know, to finish the paper with just an example, and that's 2019 December, and just with an example of what is going on around the world um, at that time. And I stumbled on like something like I think on Twitter saying that oh, there's something mysterious pneumonia going on in China. I said, wow, I said, is it SARS? And uh, so, of course, nobody answered me because, I mean, it's just December. And, and I looked into it and I thought to myself, you know, it cannot possibly be SARS because then by the end of December, we know 
like, you know, there are four cases and then things are growing, seems to be t- picking up a lot faster than, you know, than, than it should have been. If it is SARS, it will be a lot slower. But I think the really the turning point, I think by the first week of January, I was so frightened that it has already come to the United States that um, I tried to cancel my trip to New York. <laughs> and that's just the first week of January. And I thought to myself, um, I say, you know, it is not whether the um, this new virus is is going to come to the United States. I think it is already in the United States. I got this gut feeling that mm-hmm. it is there. Part of, I mean, somebody needs to understand I have been working on Amprex for like 15 years already, right? So you kind of like, one could say I'm on hyper alert and it would be better to be hyper alert, right? So we, we prepare right. more more than what uh, what could have happened. So anyway, but I think the most decisive moment, January 23rd. So like, you know, we, I don't really know much about China. I never have worked with anyone from China. And so I can't really get a good sense of what is going on to the society. But I think the announcement on January 23rd to the world saying they're going to close up the entire city of Wuhan, which is really a car city, that is a car industry city, it, it gives me this light bulb say, I think this is out of control. I think it is absolutely out of control because no one will close an entire city of 15 million people unless something is terribly wrong, right? So I think like it truly, and of course at that time, um, like I started uh, writing to James and and we discussed with Dwayne and stuff. And and so basically I just- Department Homeland Security was very alert. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically just really telling them that I think we have to start screening. So I was, I think I was naive to think we can screen right away. I said, okay, I suggested lots of screening, suggesting screening, not just people going to China, but everybody that is traveling and do strategic testing and everything so that we get a good sense of community spread and, and civilians, right? Just one head, one head, uh, one step ahead. But of course I was told, no, there's no test, there's nothing. And, and okay, it's not here yet. And don't get so nervous. So it was, it was pretty, um, kind of discouraging but I think I started building these closing schools and I think with the diamond princess it basically sealed the whole concept uh like basically I was able to predict the cruise ship yeah precisely um predict exactly how the disease cases unfold and ahead of them basically all the predictions were correct and confirm everything about asymptomatic human transmission even airborne and aerosolized and everything that people are confirming now, but it is already there in early part of February. So yes, that's why I build the uh, urging school closure. I think California did take, um, so I work with some of the emergency responders from San Diego and California. I think they took some of the advice. Maryland took some of the advice and so is Seattle. So, but, but it is difficult because there is not a, like there's not a national response um, plan in place, even though there are many plans already, but yet uh, I don't know who the leaders were at that time. And, and so basically it's, it's a little bit difficult to reach out and, and local leaders are not able to really respond because they don't have testing kits. I mean, they, they just don't have a lot of orders that allow them to do a lot of things. So, so I think, yes, it is pretty discerning. And I was looking at um, how do we maximize our limited testing resources using pool size and optimizing the vaccine prioritization. So I 
do all of those and and also reopening. So it is in some sense, you're absolutely right. The pandemic plays out exactly as what we saw in the textbook, right? I mean, every every step, like yeah. and we are we are following it instead of act, acting on it. And I my feeling is that. So I, I think it's interesting in one of the discussion I have with the leaders, their free choices, I say, oh, first is that we are overreacting. So we pump in too much resources and there's nothing happen. Okay, I got that, right? Okay, mm-hmm. that's not a good thing. Yeah. Second is that we do exactly the right thing and we avert the situation. Averting the situation means public don't see all these deaths. And maybe they think, oh, you're just overreacting, right? So it's possible. But if we don't do enough, which is the third scenario, then we will see a huge number of casualties and chaos. And I insisted 1% of infection, 1% of infection in the United States already will collapse our very fragile healthcare system because 1% infection means 20% of those 1% will need hospital care. And right, lots of people will be out of resources and no beds and everything, and then people die. So I think all of those cascading effects, exactly. But I think one of the things that is most interesting is I mentioned about the networks, right, that that I have been working on with DHS. So one of the studies I have is on the risk of um, biological attack, okay? Biological attack could be pandemic and everything. So I was pinpointing exactly the part of entries of the how the virus will come in, either deliberately or just you know naturally because of the human carrying the disease. All those airports that I have pinpoint, and I think I presented that work like in the in February of 2019, all of those airports precisely were the people <laughs> that come into the you know, it, it, it really scares me to death, right? Because when we had to do the network. It is all type of uh, biological agents. It could be people carrying those agents on the plane. So, I mean, we look at all those, but but the interconnectivity and the cascading effect cannot be overemphasized. And I thought to myself, my gosh, you know, even those type of scenarios will play out precisely as we have predicted. So, yes, I think it is a very uh, scary part. And now I just want vaccination to be done as soon as possible. I think that is most critical because for every single day we delay, there's more infection that we are facing. And as a doctor, I'm sure you 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 appreciate the the um like understand the burden that the hospital providers are you know managing. And I think reducing the infection is most critical because of the healthcare resources and, and not to mention about really reopening business and everything. So I think that's all interrelated. And, and I think, yes, I'm very passionate about that because I've spent so much time on it. And and also I gave uh, some of the keynote speech like back in 2007, precisely on all the steps, exactly. It's just a playbook. And so, yeah, it is, it's, I'm very yeah, for, for people who are in disaster medicine and 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 this is it's not the only surprise is that that we're living it, but like predicting it and expecting it, we've been doing this for many, many years. Yes. Um and unfortunately, 
disaster medicine is never taken seriously unless there's a disaster. <laughs> so yes. when there's a disaster, all of a sudden there's money to provide for for tents and 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 resources. But then the disaster goes away, you know, and people forget about it. And it's like, hey, how come we're giving all this money to here and nobody cares about it? It's like, why are you why are you investing in something that we don't see or feel? And then it hits you, right? And then that's exactly right. what happened here. Well, you know. Um, so that's interesting. Well, thank you so much for the for the work and 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 that you really work with the Department of Homeland Security for our nation with your mathematical modeling and hopefully it it'll you know continue and people learn and improve. Um, I would say for coronavirus, we could look back at the Spanish flu and see how long it took to manage that. That was four years. It was yes. four years. So mm-hmm. hopefully with COVID, it'll be. Two years, what do you think? I think like amazing. I have to say out of all these um, disappointments, I think the biggest surprise and success is the vaccine development. I have to yes. say the operations warp speed is a good initiative. It doesn't really matter if those pharmaceutical companies say they're not part of it. It creates a good competition environment, right? So mm-hmm. everyone is competing and trying to beat the clock, right? I mean, around, and, and I think this is remarkable in terms of the vaccine. So my feeling is that I think it's going to take us two to three years. It's not, and, and I know some people think that this is going to be endemic and that we will need booster shots uh, every year. I do not know yet at the moment whether that is where we are heading. But on the other hand, I do think that this year, we're not going to have it so easy that having all the vaccines by summer and then we can all be like, you know, go back to new normal again. I think it's going to take a little longer. And that, um, but on the other hand, I still believe that we need uh, really to be vigilant. And exactly like you say about disaster medicine is that we need to appreciate the, the um, challenge and the difficulty and the sustained effort. Sustaining is the difficulty, right? Mm-hmm. Being able right. to say, well, we're going to turn, uh, we're going to like eliminate or, or reduce infection. That's great. But reducing the infection is one thing, but sustaining it at a low level, that is what we need. And I think that is going to be a test for the American people if they have the patience and um, and the resilience, right? Not just the patient, because we need them mentally strong and, and have that, that emotional resilience to be able to do all these. And so it's a lot to ask for, but hopefully I think... Um, we can do it, and 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 uh, hopefully we could beat the very the uh, new variant uh, virus, and and being able to not let our guard down because I think the virus is just that, and and it's going to be a lot more viruses that we're going to see. So this is not new, and it may be more common, and and then hopefully it doesn't take us too long to learn it and to be really good at it. Right. And, you know, and the medical community has stepped up. I remember that, you know, waiting for my first case, it was just a matter of when and will I recognize it and will I know what to do? Um, and now it's every day, you know, okay, oh, COVID, another COVID, you know, <laughs> we we, we kind of know what to do, yeah, although yeah. our protocols change. Providers are excellent. And I think it's the burden. I think it's the burden on the healthcare. And, and also not only that, as you see, it's the entire resources devoted to COVID, right? And then, other patients suffer. And that's something we can't afford either. So, I mean, I think medical resources is limited, even though we have such huge amount of, of dollar and providers. So, Eva, you're, 
You're so, so right in what you just said. It really affects other people. I had um, a, a patient uh, two Christmases ago who um, came in with uh, ventricular fibrillation. And I, he was a young guy and I would not give up on him. I said, we, we're not going to pronounce this code. We're doing CPR. I'm going to go for an hour. This is reversible. It's a young person. I got him in the CAT scan. I got him in the cath lab. I did everything. And and he sent me an a email thank you a year later on, on Christmas again, um, saying, you know, that, you know, I'm looking good, feeling good. And I just thought that if he, if that happened one year later, he would not be alive. We don't, we don't do that. He, the cath right. lab wouldn't be open. The cath scan wouldn't do it. He would not be alive today because, because of the stress already that that uh, COVID is happening. So right. that's, that yeah, is I true. Think I really worry about that part because I think we don't have a healthcare systems where it is just all idle, right? On a on a natural mm-hmm. normal day, it is already very busy. With the COVID is on top of that, and that I right. think I think that the toll to the American people is not just counting the number of deaths for COVID, but mm-hmm. it is really counting everything, right? I mean, not to right. mention about the economical part, but I mean, the economy is, is a big piece of it. But if you just count only the lives of people, then there's a lot more lives than just the COVID lives. And, and I think right. combined together, then we know how important that we need to do well on COVID or else, you know, more people suffer from it. Right. And the issue with uh, drugs and addiction, you know, treatment centers, are they opened? Um, things working remotely by telehealth is not the same as being in person for mm-hmm. for something like that. So that uh, and then more people who are using um, as as an escape of, of stress and increased yes. access. So that's all related. But. Right. Thank you so much. I, I really hope, you know, the whole credo model and the, the vision of, of uniting public health, public safety and prevention. I really hope it goes there. We're at the, the vision and the start phase here in, in San Diego, but I really hope that we can become a best practice and, and to use your mathematical brainiac intelligence uh, to help us make that happen. Um, so wish us luck. Um, and I, I definitely uh, look forward to working you with you and collaborating in any way that we can. Um, it's uh, it's it's an honor. I always learn something, so thank you. And I I want to do you have any uh, parting advice for Marla? Marla is a, uh, our facilitator who had a, a question for this show. Well, I I um, well I look forward uh, just as you say I look forward to working with you guys and really. I do believe that, you know, San Diego could become a model system for the rest of the country. And I think like building the connectivity, it's going to really uh, be huge benefits, not just an opioid, but in many different ways and like uh, fighting against different types of diseases and and even chronic illnesses and mental health and all of these. So I think I believe that such an construct itself will be so important in many levels to the people. So yeah, thank you for your effort. And I would love to be part of the team. 
That's great. And I want to give a special thank you to Marla Kincaid, a very special person to me uh, as a friend and a colleague. So I thank you for your high truth question. And I also thank you for having the true art of being a facilitator. People think a facilitator is someone who just brings people together. That's true. But the art is to make everyone feel important, feel heard, bringing the right people to the table and being smart and knowledgeable about the subject matter to give great direction. And Marla is a perfect example for that. And the result is a fun and pleasant place to work and people who want to volunteer their time and effort and feel that they're making an impact in the community. So thank you, Marla. And Dr. Eva Lee, I love saying Lee because I don't know if you guys know, but my husband is Lee and my children are Lee. So saying Dr. Lee is like, you know, I could be talking to my husband or my children. But uh, uh, Eva, thank you for the education and service you give our nation. You use your geeky mathematics to make a clinical impact. And I look forward to tapping into your knowledge for our San Diego Credo work and even writing an article about how we pay for drugs on on both ends and, and solutions. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Thanks. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This High Truths podcast is sponsored by CCR, the Center for Community Research, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. CCR is a San Diego-based nonprofit organization that has been recognized at the state and national level for community work on opioids, prescription drugs, methamphetamines, youth marijuana prevention, and data evaluation. Learn more about CCR at ccrconsulting.org. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.